Welcome back to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers can expand their understanding of functional endocrinology and testing, and everyone, no matter who you are, can learn more about their body's most complex communication system. I'm Noah Reed, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the Dutch Test. Coming up on this week's episode, our very first Ask the Expert segment brings you Dr. Tara Scott, a nationally recognized authority on hormones and wellness. Dr. Scott will be answering the questions about the reproductive cycle that you've been wondering about for a long time. Join us for an overview of the female reproductive system and the phases of the menstrual cycle. Plus, she'll answer the question, what is a normal cycle? Now, let's dive in. Dr. Tara Scott first became involved with hormones and integrative medicine while practicing as an OBGYN and soon became certified by the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. She founded her practice, Revitalize, with a devotion to evidence-based regenerative medicine and a focus on hormone-related issues. She is also the creator of the online Revitalize Academy, a course to help patients improve their hormone problems themselves. Dr. Scott has been speaking and educating for over 10 years and has taught doctors her approach in five continents. She has chosen to speak for TEDx, and she has been featured in The List, Authority Magazine, Thrive Global, and on numerous podcasts. And now, on to the show. Thanks, Noah. And I am super thrilled to have Dr. Tara Scott joining us today. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. As both a man and a not a doctor, and specifically not a female patient doctor. Um, we really wanted to have someone on to, to really take us through the ins and outs of uh, that premenopausal phase of life so people can really get a good understanding of what happens with those hormones. So I think let's just start at the beginning of that awakening. Um, there happens to be someone in my house who's in that sort of process of that, that awakening of the ovaries and that, that cycle that uh, we talk about a lot. So can you take us back to like sort of in terms of hormones and physiology, like right before that, and then just kind of walk us through what those family of hormones and physiologically, like what's happening as women enter that phase where they are officially premenopausal and cycling? Sure. So as an infant, you have one to two million eggs that you are born with. And basically, as you age, some a lot of those follicles just kind of die. We call that atresia. So what happens first is the pituitary gland starts pulsing um, your gonadotropin releasing hormone and your FSH and LH. So FSH is a hormone that the main job is to stimulate the ovaries to grow a follicle, while LH is the, the hormone that is gonna stimulate ovulation. So first it's mostly FSH. So in puberty, the average age in the United States is around 11 or 12. The first thing that happens is breast development. So it's theolarchy, adrenarchy, growth spurt, then menarche. So that's, how, that's the okay. order that it goes in. So the first thing that happens FSH goes up, you start having, first you have your hypothalamus that does your pulses, FSH goes up and you start producing estradiol. So that happens even before ovulation and that can happen a while. So first you get the breast buds. About a year and a half after that, we can expect potentially the period to start. It depends, this is just kind of on average. Sure. So then you're gonna get adrenarche, which is starting to get pubic hair, starting to get hair under your ar underarms. So that's the next thing. And that's generally 
you know, promoted by the androgens, um, which are also produced in the ovary as well and in the adrenal gland. And then you have your growth spurt. After the growth spurt, then you can expect the, the first period to happen anywhere around 11 to 12. It, it actually, I think, is getting early and earlier, so much so that the American Academy of Pediatrics is like changing the definition of of early uh, puberty, precocious puberty, which the definition should say the same. Right. We should just realize that it's happening earlier and earlier. Yeah, I my kids have the unfortunate or fortunate uh, experience of living in my house. Uh, so I've been testing two girls and a boy since they were very young. Um, and it's really interesting to see them starting at before adrenarche, um, having levels that are lower than what a postmenopausal woman, I mean, it's basically like zero, like there's nothing there. Um, there's just no substrate. There's just not a lot going on. Um, and then watching them, like being able to, I can distinguish the difference when my girls were nine and 11, I could tell the difference between the nine-year-old and the 11-year-old. And even now as the second one is 11, she's a little bit higher than the other one in terms of, of estrogen. Um, and then, and watching then that, onset of menses happen and like life begins and, and all of that. And I thought I'd be clever and test her the month after that to see if ovulation was happening, which it seems like it wasn't. So I'm curious, um, when that first onset of menses happens, like estrogen builds that, uh, that tissue, which then you lose a month, monthly and that sort of a thing. But like at the onset of menses, are you assuming and, and expecting at that point, there is regular ovulation going on typically? It takes generally about 18 months from the first period to have regular ovulatory periods. So some people, I mean, some people, some girls will just have a monthly cycle, but it's not the most common thing. Um, that's generally what our textbooks say. Now, of course, you and I both know that with plastics, with environment, with, you know, other um, uh, endocrine disruptors, this has all changed since our textbooks, but that's what we were taught is that it's about 18 months until you can count on having regular ovulatory cycles. Right. It is interesting. The impact of like, since the time you are smaller than a thimble, you know, you're being bombarded with estrogens, uh, that someone in 1847, uh, would have been absent from their like in utero development when sexual differentiation is happening and all of that. And, and then seeing that play out in terms of, you know, how, how people's cycles start. So as those start, can you describe for us, if we move forward then to where regular cycling is happening in the stereotypically healthy female, like what's happening what, what are those hormones doing and which hormones are we concerned about that are, are dancing around throughout the month? What are those hormones and what are they doing throughout that, that month of the menstrual cycle? So we teach that day one is the first day of menstrual full flow. Like if you have a little bit of spotting before, that's generally not included in the period. It's day one of full flow. So that can be difficult to discern when you're having anovulatory bleeding, especially around the time of puberty. But at that point, that FSH and LH in your pituitary gland is trying to drive for a follicle to develop. About day five of your cycle, one follicle will step forward and says, hey, it's my turn, I'm gonna be the dominant follicle. And you can expect that generally in your cycle, that one follicle will produce 95% of your estradiol that cycle. Okay. So as it grows, it starts to produce estradiol. It sends a negative feedback back to the brain saying, hey, we got plenty of estrogen down here. And then you also have inhibin too. So that is preventing humans from having a litter. So once there's a dominant follicle, 
the stimulus will decrease then. So no more follicles generally are recruited. That follicle will continue to grow and produce estradiol. In the middle of the cycle, you have the LH surge. And what that is signaling is the rupture of the follicle or ovulation. So there's a surge that generally takes about 24 to 48 hours in the middle of the cycle. We teach on a 28 day cycle. So you would expect that to be day 14. The shell, I, I explain it as the shell of the egg, but really the, the, the um, cells, I can't, I'm trying to remember the what the term is now. Well, it becomes the corpus luteum, but it's like the graphene follicle that. and there's something specific that it's called, but of course I forgot my anatomy. <laughs> it invaginates and collapses and becomes the corpus luteum. Gotcha. And then the corpus luteum then starts producing progesterone, which peaks around seven days after ovulation at about 25 milligrams production per day. So at that point, the egg and the sperm have already either met or not met. And if, it, if it, there's no conception, then the hormones start to fall, then inhibin will fall as well, and FSH will already be looking forward for the starting to get the next follicle to start growing as the estradiol and the progesterone that had been produced from the corpus luteum then will fall. So the whole point of this is reproduction. So the progesterone that's produced from the corpus luteum as they're waiting to see if there's any implantation is getting the lining of the uterus more stable. It's causing regulation. Estrogen causes proliferation and progesterone is causing regulation of that tissue. Um, and then it's getting that lining lush and ready in case there is implantation. Um, conception generally occurs in the tubes and then the embryo will come down to the uterus and implant. And so then you would have implantation and if conception has occurred, then progesterone production will continue from that corpus luteum until about week 13 when the placenta takes over. If conception doesn't occur, then everything drops and the whole thing starts over again. Okay. Back to the follicular phase of the cycle. So let's, so follicular ovulatory luteal that's the way we can break down those three parts of the cycle right so if we go to the follicular phase normal for a woman if we're talking about so for us we're trying to look at estrogen and progesterone and then of course there are you know dutch is comprehensive we're looking at lots of other things but as it relates to those female reproductive hormones we typically don't have people collect in the follicular phase we're we're We'll get to that when we do want them to collect. But what, what is normal um, in that follicular phase for estrogen and progesterone, maybe as it compares to a postmenopausal woman? So normally, and, it, and it's interesting because when we're talking about hormone replacement, there's no agreement as to where what kind of value we should shoot for. But I was always taught that women feel the best in the follicular phase, not the luteal phase. I mean, they feel best the second week of the cycle. So those are the values that we kind of shoot for. So um, again, um, no one's ever studied that or look at what serum values are, but most of the time I, I test, a, I've tested a lot of people over the last 15, 20 years. And I, I generally, I have done labs at that, at that time, serum labs because of either fertility cycle day three, we're generally thought to be able to assess the, what's called the ovarian reserve. Uh, it's an indirect measurement of how many follicles you have left if you're at advanced to maternal age, which would be anything over 35. 
So we see a variety of estrogen and, and certainly I'm always amazed that some people have their symptoms a lot right in this follicular phase because they're making a lot of estrogen, mm. but you generally don't make much progesterone until maybe starting around 10, 11, a little bit. Most of it's coming from the corpus luteum though, right. so you're not going to get it till ovulation. Right. So that the estrogen levels then should be in the early phase should be north of what a postmenopausal woman would be, but not not as high as you'd see in luteal and not nearly as high as you'd see around ovulation. And then the right. progesterone levels, is your expectation that the progesterone levels prior to ovulation, so I'm premenopausal, I haven't ovulated, which creates that really robust progesterone surge. Am I expecting similar progesterone levels in the follicular phase as a postmenopausal woman would see, or they, do they tend to be a little bit higher than what a postmenopausal woman would be? They're probably similar to postmenopausal. Right. Serum ranges are anywhere from like 0.1 to 0.3. It's pretty low. It's pretty right. tight. And postmenopausal ranges might be a little over one. So, and I don't ask me the units, but sure. um, you're the lab guy, not right. me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, they're, they're pretty similar to postmenopausal, right. right? Because there's just not a lot of progesterone production by definition. Right. So there's different, there's differentiation between estrogen deficient and estrogen normal at that phase, but there really isn't in progesterone, which is why we don't test there. So if we move forward to, unless we're in a cycle mapping situation, which we'll get to a little bit. So if we move forward to ovulation, so at ovulation, I've got an estrogen that's high and volatile. Would that be a good description? And then progesterone that's about to surge, right? Right. So, so hopefully it's obvious why if we're doing a one point test, we wouldn't want to do it there because we're shooting at a moving target for estradiol, which doesn't tell us a whole lot. And then the progesterone is about ready to, or, or maybe has started to surge, which again, you're shooting at two moving targets, not a good idea. So then we move to the luteal phase and this is where we, we tend to see people test. That's where our instructions points people towards. Uh, so w why, why is that the ideal phase of a menstrual cycle, if you're going to test on one day, why, why are we shooting for those days? And what, what days are those typically? Well, typically we say between day 19 to 21. And again, that's on a 28 day cycle. So if you're pretty consistently a 20, uh, a 35 day cycle, we think that you would ovulate around day 21. Right. So we really want it to be seven around seven to eight days after ovulation. So if women know they're always a 35 day cycle, then it would definitely be a 28 day uh, test for them. We're trying to catch that peak of progesterone for a couple of reasons. The symptoms are driven by that imbalance between estrogen and progesterone for the most part. Now, some of my patients, like I said, not as commonly will have specific symptoms in the follicular phase. That's when the cycle map is great. Um, if they have a specific set of symptoms, but most of our patients are symptomatic after ovulation. So mid luteal, maybe even the last few days before the period starts. So, if I, so we're trying to capture that balance between estradiol and progesterone, and that's why we test after, after ovulation. Right. So there's, okay, so we've got a plateau of sorts with both progesterone and estrogen, which makes them relatively stable and a pretty good target for us to shoot at. And if we do that, then what are you looking for in terms of when you're talking about the balance between the two? Like, what are you looking for there? And what do you tend to see when that gets imbalanced? And in which direction do you typically see that and see it problematic? 
So with the functional testing, um, like the Dutch test, you guys calculate a ratio for us, right? Or you're depicting it with the dials, which makes it, I'm a visual person, so I love that part of the test. But when you're looking at serum labs, there is a different um, normal range for ovulation, you know, follicular, ovulation, and then just luteal in general. Right. What I notice since I began doing this, like I said, 20 years ago, is that they the labs actually changed the luteal range. So the whole definition of ovulation is you're producing progesterone. So it used to be 4 to 28 in the serum for normal range for progesterone, and they've changed it to 1.8, probably because we're testing progesterone more, and their normal database is seeing lower progesterone, so their response is to change the normal range, which is the last thing you should do, really. It should should stay the same. And so I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of women, when they're seeing their practitioners, they, they're not knowing when to check, even if we're talking about serum levels versus they're not knowing how to interpret and they're being flagged right. as normal. Because clearly with a serum level, like we talked about follicular zero to 0 0.8 or whatever, and then 1.8, there's not much of an increase with ovulation there. So I don't know how that can be normal. So what we're looking for if you have those ratios calculated like it is in the Dutch test, it makes us it makes it a little bit easier on us because we're looking for a match, right? So estrogen causes growth and progesterone causes apoptosis. Right. So it's like I always explain to my patients that it's like estrogen is what you're charging on your credit card and progesterone is what you're paying off. You don't want there to be a balance, right? Because it may not be a big deal for a few months, but over time that's going to be a problem. Yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy. I like that. The way we've done our presentation of that on the Dutch test is, you know, we we have those dials so that the the ratio, if you will, is sort of a visual one of saying like you can just stare at that as sort of a tug of war sort of thought of like wherever you are low or high is interesting. But then where you are relatively speaking, which is what like the ratio is is more about is who's winning that sort of production war that if estrogen's winning that production war and is sort of dialed higher than the progesterone, then the types of problems that you're talking about, um, you know, you're going to start to see in your patients. Let me move you back to the follicular phase because I, want, I wanted to go through just quickly the types, especially if we think in, in terms of doing the cycle mapping where you get to see the whole um, the whole cycle, we, we focus a lot of energy, and rightly so, on the luteal phase, but what are the types of dysfunction you see in the follicular phase, and you sort of alluded to those, but what are the, what are the hormonal causes of that? Meaning you're seeing the symptoms you're talking about because estrogen's too high, because can you speak a little bit about the types of issues you'd see in that early part of the cycle in a patient? Sure. The, one of the biggest things is migraines. And so migraines, we traditionally see at ovulation with that drop in estradiol. But, and then the second most common time would be right before the period starts because you've got the drop in estrogen and progesterone right before the period starts. But more commonly, I see women who on day three and day five are getting migraines. And what that's from is when estrogen ramps up so quickly and you're estrogen dominant, even in the follicular phase, because we don't expect you to have progesterone. Right. So if your estrogen's way out, and I'm sure you've seen these in your cycle map that you're seeing these really high follicular estrogens, women can be symptomatic then too, as well. And where that comes from is again, I, I explain it to, you know, that happens in the perimenopause. So I kind of explain to my patients is, Picture your eggs as old men at the Y sitting on the bench waiting to swim a lap, 
right? And so the lifeguard's in his chair, the lifeguard's your FSH, and the lifeguard is saying next. And then a man is getting up, hopping on the block, swimming a lap and coming back. And then the lifeguard says next, and the next guy hops up, swims his lap and comes back. And the lifeguard says next, nothing happens because they're old and they can't hear. So what do you think happens next? Ramp the up lifeguard the picks up his megaphone, right? And screams next. And then what, what do the men do? They all stand up. Is he talking to me? Is it my turn? So they all stand up. So you've got all these eggs, follicles growing from the increase in FSH for the poor quality responding follicles. Then some of them will stand right around the block and be waiting. Sometimes what happens is one jumps in, he gets to the other side of the pool and before he even comes back, another one jumps in. That's when we get luteal out of phase sequencing that you get these 15 every 15 day cycles because you have ovulation and then a few days later, you have another ovulation. So it always confused me. How could people have cycles every 15 days? And the NAMS has actually named that as a luteal phase cycle. Well, that's what's happening. You got a one jumping in and he's not even waiting for the guy to get out. And then what happens to the other ones? They might just sit there and then might say, yeah, I don't really feel like swimming anyway. And they might leave. So some of them will have atresia. Some of them will make follicular cysts and continue to produce estradiol, but never actually hop on the block and swim. So you just have chaos, right? That's what perimenopause is. But we often see that in that late reproductive stage where over 35, you know, where you, you're maybe not doing that, but you're getting a lot, you know, more FSH, you're getting a lot of estradiol in the follicular phase. I had one patient who was having a lot of nausea, a lot of nausea the second week of her cycle. And again, I did a cycle map on her because she wasn't having symptoms traditionally in the luteal phase. It was the second week of the follicular phase. And so that was because her, her, she had problems with estrogen dominance, she had problems with estrogen detoxification, and she was way ramping up her estradiol prior to ovulation. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. A great example of what can drive a short cycle. Also, nice segue. Um, so short cycles. So talk to me about, um, that's one example. What, what are the other sort of causal factors? Cause we, we think a, a lot of times we test women who have irregular cycles, but those come in different flavors, right? So if we have not as much irregular, but like short cycles, what other things can drive a woman to have, or when do you see women with consistently short cycles? So we teach that 28 days is a normal cycle. And I would say probably anywhere from 26, 27 to 35 is probably within the range normal. of normal ovulatory okay. cycles. So short would be less than 26, 23, 24. There's two things that can cause that. One is what's called a luteal phase uh, deficiency, which generally means the egg is old, it's not producing as much progesterone. So that guy's not swimming as fast as he would, right? So you're ovulating, but not as much progesterone. Right. That's problem number one. Problem number two is an old egg is gonna ovulate earlier. So instead of 14 days, they're gonna, a lot of women may ovulate around day 10 because this increased FSH, the follicle gets to about two millimeters before it ruptures. So if it's growing fast from this FSH stimulation, it's going to get to the right size quicker, right. maybe day 10 as you get older because of the FSH that's going up. You have ovulation earlier and then you have a shorter cycle. We know that from the time of ovulation to period should be 14 days. So shorter than that would be luteal phase deficiency or older eggs would be earlier ovulation and then a shorter overall cycle. 
Yeah, I went, I went through a bunch of our cycle mapping data just to see if it told that story um, to sort of prove to myself, you know, is that estrogen peak more consistent from the front or more consistent from the back? And it was really interesting that it was very consistent from the back of the cycle, that when you go back that 14, 15 days, boom, there's your estrogen peak for short cycles, for long cycles. Like that was the most consistent data. Um, obviously, we're individuals um, and there are all sorts of different patterns, but the most consistent thing was that right at 14, 15 days from the end of the cycle is where, where we see that estrogen peak. So you're describing short cycles and you're describing people who are typically still ovulating but not making enough progesterone. So then, if you're testing somewhere between four and 10 days before the end of the cycle with a, something like a Dutch Complete, then you should still be able to assess to what degree the progesterone is sort of struggling to be made in adequate um, quantities. Is that, is that a good, dis good description of how you sort of think through that? Yeah, and of course we never know what 10 days before the cycle is because right. retrospectively you don't know when your period's gonna start. Right. So some women feel, you know, middle schmerz or the pain of ovulation. Some can look at the spinobarket or that's the mucus of ovulation and they know when they're ovulating. Some women do LH predictor kits where they're doing urinary collection for LH surge and then they're timing ovulation and then they're collecting after that. Um, so you'll hit most of it if you arbitrarily say between 19 or 21. If my patient tells me they're consistently a 30-40 cycle, we'll adjust when we tell them to collect it. Yeah, we, we've had people for a long time now use those ovulation predictor kits. And, you know, you got to spend an extra 20 bucks, which is way less frustrating than collecting on Monday, start your bleeding right. on Tuesday, and you're like, oh, so disappointing. Because then you can't adequately you know, assess whether the progesterone was adequate or inadequate. And sometimes whether it was uh, just on the lower side, but you're ovulating or anovulatory, like those distinctions become hard to make if you don't get in that window. Well, the bigger problem is the patient I talked to today, she collected on day 21 and she had her period on day 35. Ah. So now what do you have? Right. You have ovulation, you have a huge high estrogen and low progesterone. Which may be perfectly normal for that day. Right. That's what I'm saying. Right. So, but, you know, so again, by the time we get the test back, they'll have had their period so we can tell them. But when she collects it, she doesn't know. She's told day 21, you know, right. and that's part of the issue. This is why I would love to have, instead of a continuous glucose monitor, a continuous estrogen monitor. So if you can develop that, just we'll, like a little we'll work on you know, that, <laughs> yeah, will you work on that? I would like to, um, you know, help you, we, patent you know, we will do that, but I will say you've given people a really good nugget, and that is you're convincing patients to spend their money on a test, right? Yeah. Ask those questions about cycle irregularity, and when there's doubt, go the extra step of figuring out a way to isolate ovulation with a reasonable accuracy, test seven days, right, about seven days after ovulation, seven to nine days, and then you've nailed what we call luteal, then you're properly assessing progesterone and avoiding the frustration of having them be sort of you know, lazy is not, not the right word, but less comprehensive in your approach and then running the risk of them getting a really comprehensive test, but not having an assessment of the progesterone, which is really important. Right. So you then transitioned into the woman who's having a 35 day cycle. So let's talk about that. So you talked about short cycles causes. So what about the women who are at, you said 26 to 33, is that what's your normal? 
35, even 35, you okay. could have an ovulatory, yeah. Okay, so you if I'm at 36 to 45-ish, whatever, as a female, what are some of the causal factors that might drive a consistently long cycle? So most commonly, we see that associated with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so there's three theories as to what the inciting etiology of that is. One is the abnormal pulsations of gonadotropins, and so that it ends up that LH is twice as much as FSH. So they kind of get stuck in the follicular phase because FSH is not as predominant, so they don't get to day five. So it takes them a while and they ovulate late. The second theory is that there's an increase in androgen and it usually happens in two cell lines, either the adrenal androgens are elevated, but by definition, these are usually younger girls who are gonna have higher DHEAS and then high testosterone happens, which can also suppress ovulation and prevent that from coming. And the third theory is that it starts with insulin. You have hyperinsulinemia, which suppresses ovulation and causes the whole vicious cycle. So we don't really know. My, my general theory is that it starts with the gonadotropins and that's where the defect is. They've tried to isolate a genetic defect, either a SNP or a whole genome that would be causative of PCOS, but they haven't been able to, although it does run in families. So that's the most common thing that people who get stuck in the follicular phase. It could be hypothalamic. It could be somebody who's an athlete, the female athlete triad, that they're just not getting that hypothalamic uh, they're suppressed, so they're not getting the FSH and LH to stimulate the follicle to grow. Sometimes those longer cycles are not really even ovulatory. It's just that they have estrogen, they don't have estradiol, they have estrone via peripheral aromatization still causing the increase in the lining and they get what I call overflow bleeding. So it's not like progesterone's triggering withdrawal, they just, that, that, that lining will keep increasing until something just triggers them to have a bleed and it's anovulatory. So leads to a good question for me, which is, um, you know, we talked about short, we talked about long, which neither of those I would describe as necessarily irregular in the sense of just sort of the woman who's unfortunately all over the place. Uh, are there different causal factors from short cycles, long cycles that causes that situation where the timing of the cycle um, other than maybe perimenopausal, though you could speak to that as well, but that just cause erratic cycles? Well, in the absence of insulin resistance and PCOS, um, there are other things that just affect anovulation. I mean, it's you could have mold, you could have yeast, you could have stress, stress which would still fall under hypothalamic. Um, those are the biggest ones. And then I think, you know, I think estrogen dominance, just a, a defect in estrogen um, detoxification, which we can see, you know, with gut issues, we can see with methylation issues, and then high estrogen is going to suppress ovulation because you're sending the feedback, the negative feedback to FSH, and that's going to impair the follicular phase. So a lot of that, that can happen with you know, obesity as well, um, as well as insulin resistance. So those are the things that we see. Um, you know, there are some other rare things like primary ovarian insufficiency. We used to say primary ov premature ovarian failure, but now it's called primary ovarian insufficiency, POI. Um, and so that is genetic as well. And that can be a reason why they're having irregular periods and they don't know until later on that they're ha gonna have premature menopause. Right, and you're speaking, I think, to part of the reason why we made the Dutch test the way that we did is, you know, you're thinking about, here's one woman who's got uh, a concurrent androgen issue, maybe too much, 
maybe a five alpha metabolism issue, which is making it even more androgenic. Or here's a woman over here who's got a, a cortisol issue that's also contributing to that, or the, the poor soul who's got both of those things going on and, and contributing. Um, and is why I would imagine for you, it's a nice thing to have testing that offers like a window into um, a lot of those, um, those different uh, pieces of the hormone milieu. Um, so can you talk a little bit about just how uh, how you sort of approach sort of the hierarchy intellectually of, okay, I've got this woman who's, whose issue is really centered around female hormones, but then I'm trying to bring in these other things um, that the Dutch test has to offer, and maybe you'd even throw in some other things that come from your serum testing and elsewhere, but how does that sort of mental hierarchy go for you in terms of trying to find the source or sources of those types of problems? So, you know, I'm skewed because I'm a gynecologist by training. So people are going to come to me for mainly hormone issues. I mean, if you think about like the functional medicine approach as, as of IFM, they would start with the gut, right? But I think in this instance, in these patients that their main complaints are menstrual regularities, it makes sense to start with their hormones. So I always start with a serum assessment for thyroid, for insulin, for metabolic things as well. You always, it's always nice to pull the FSH and LH to see if there's any issues there as well. Dihydrotestosterone, I like to pull in the serum as well as DHEAS. So the Dutch test is a complete assessment of the ovulatory hormones. In addition, you get that nice piece of cortisol and cortisone. And so I do like that assessment as well because it's a really important piece of the puzzle that shouldn't be neglected. The seeing the metabolites, as you mentioned, how are your how is your testosterone metabol metabolism? Is it favoring five alpha or five beta? The estrogen metabolism is a huge game changer. And you know, personally, as a traditionally trained uh, OBGYN, we're not taught about that at all. Right. And that is a huge reason why we have made all the mistakes in hormone replacement therapy is giving everybody the same dose, not testing before or after, and why would one dose affect somebody differently than as somebody else that has problems in estrogen metabolism, and then they go on and get cancer from hormones or something else. So I think, you know, even still trying to convince my traditional colleagues that this is the right way to do things um, is somewhat challenging. Uh, because we're just not even taught about this. I mean, I'm sure we were at some point taught about cytochrome P450 and liver detox in physiology right. in second year of med school and then never applied that to hormones. So um, so I think, you know, that having that part of the test and having, um, having you know, the estrogen metabolism is great. Um, then the bonus organic acids where you get your B vitamin status is really great too because those are important for methylation. Um, the A to HDG is great too for overall oxidative stress measurement for women, especially heading into perimenopause because we're seeing, I, I personally will see women with a lot of mental health complaints and so it's kind of good to see that as well. But having the dopamine and the norepinephrine metabolites are really great as well too. So, you know, yes, you get for, for almost every female hormone related complaint, you're gonna get an assessment with the Dutch test, which is nice. You just have to do the thyroid and the other metabolic labs and right. the serum. Right. 
Yeah, I, I tend to think of the, I always use the word commodity. Like to me, those are like commodity tests. Like, you know, you can get them at this lab or that lab and, you, and you're, they're never going anywhere. Like they're a staple of what, yeah. of what you do. And then for us, like in this little specialty niche, you know, our job is to arm you with as much information to complement that as we can. You mentioned the estrogen metabolites. We know you're a breast cancer expert. So I'm in the middle of the luteal phase. I'm testing my female patient. My, my big questions are about estrogen and progesterone balance and all of that. And then along for the ride, I get my two hydroxy, four hydroxy, 16 hydroxy estrogens and methylation. So what's your thought process in terms of what you're trying to glean from those metabolites um, and how does that sort of change the interpretation of some, some of those and, and then in, of course the, the treatment itself? So I do a Dutch test on all of my breast cancer patients and all of my high risk for breast cancer, like if they have a family medical history or if they've had dense breasts or if they've had, you know, DCIS, which technically is treated as cancer or something like that. Um, there's, there, there is data that has been published because I have done literature searches to see has someone looked at, but there's not a lot of testing on estrogen metabolites. That's been in PubMed. If you search PubMed, actually, I just pulled a whole nother huge um, stack of articles on specifically about estrogen metabolites. Um, and and other pathology that I have, I'm planning to try to go through. But I think even in the serum evaluation of breast cancer patients, they didn't always do luteal levels. They were doing follicular levels. So you can never include what uh, how our progesterone will be abnormal. So the only thing that was consistently found in breast cancer patients is that is a high endogenous testosterone level seem to be positively correlated with breast, an increased incidence of breast cancer. There were a couple studies that luteal estradiol, the higher was the higher incidence of breast cancer was, and then there was an inverse relationship with progesterone. The lower it was, the higher incidence of breast cancer. But there's just not a lot of data. And, and if you look at any of these meta-analysis, not all the studies are knowing when to do the testing. You're not going to get that information from day three. And I, and I still think a lot of gynecologists think we test hormones on day three. So I would love to see more data in that arena um, and about estrogen detoxification. There are some studies that link methylation, genetic SNPs with breast cancer incidence. Right. There are some data that shows 4-hydroxyestrone is higher in breast cancer survivors and adenocarcinoma in the actual tumor cells too as well. But again, there's just not enough data to have it widespread and have people adopt that. So we're, I'm still fighting that fight to get that awareness out there. Um, so, so that estrogen balance of proliferation and apoptosis, you know, has been shown in the breast as well as the uterus. And everybody agrees in the uterus we want, we don't want estrogen to run rampant, right. but we haven't made that connection in traditional medicine that the uterine and the breast cell are similar. Although our endocrinology textbook from residency by Dr. Leon Spiroff says that literally in his book. So I don't know why, again, that doesn't make it. So I'm, I'm just, I'm lecturing the residents on Friday. So I'm reviewing my notes about all this. And, you know, I actually go from our textbook and that's where I quote that. So, cause that's what they're taught out of, but no one's put that together in the traditional sect. Right. And, and some of the variables that we're dealing with on a daily basis with patients are still yet to be totally un, unpacked, you know, by the research, which is what makes it kind of an exciting field. 
Um, so I really appreciate your time and just unpacking female hormones for us. I, I have learned a lot um, and I swim in this every day. Um, so it's great to have someone on who's got such a breadth of, of knowledge of, uh, of that topic. So thank you for joining us and we will have you back to talk about other parts of the life cycle of female. Uh, but thanks for joining us and illuminating the topic for us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Dr. Scott, thank you so much for joining us on part one of a two-part series. Next week, we'll continue the conversation about the female reproductive system. We'll get in-depth with the next transition that women go through, which is menopause, and how to effectively test and treat women during this time. A big thanks to all of our listeners. Remember to like, subscribe, and share on your favorite streaming app. Until next time, I'm Noah Reed.